Today's episode of Dog Nation Daily is brought to you by Engineered Solutions of Georgia. Dial 678-ESOG now for a solution to your foundation and waterproofing problems. Presented by DogNation.com, this is Dog Nation Daily, the daily podcast for Georgia Bulldogs fans. Here's your host, Brandon Adams. And good morning to each of you, Dog Nation Daily, the daily podcast for Georgia Bulldogs fans, presented by Engineered Solutions of Georgia, rolling into a Tuesday. Yeah, that's what day it is. It sort of feels like when you're kind of coming off the holidays and everything like that, it kind of takes you a little while to sort of figure out what day it is. But for many of you, kind of getting back to it. And so we're happy to be with you as you do all of that. Obviously, we're still in a little bit of a different type of vibe for our show today, but nonetheless, happy to be here and kind of fascinated by what we saw last night. It's a weird irony in the fact that we've gotten 10 years now worth of college football playoff semifinal games. And in the last vestiges of this current format, they gave us last night two of the best games that the playoff semifinals have ever given us. You know, if the desire was to have competitive games and, and, and closely contested football games, entertaining to watch, well, the committee at least got that part of it right last night because uh, I think I'm like most of you enjoying both of these games, if not as a Georgia fan sitting there kind of a little bit restless and sort of shifting around in my chair a little bit. But the idea that, man, this really could have been Georgia. This, you know, this really could have been that go for three in 23 that we talked about all throughout the year. Obviously not meant to be uh, for this particular year. Boy, when you're watching that last night, you see the opportunities that Georgia would have had to make a lot of noise in the college football playoff if it could have just simply taken care of more of its business against Alabama. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to be very relaxed and casual today. I hope you don't mind that. Uh, Connor Riley is going to join us here in a minute. We're just going to kind of talk for a couple of minutes and just kind of sift through, perhaps almost in no uncertain order, the thoughts that I had, both from a college football-centric and a little bit of a Georgia-centric perspective on the two national semifinal games, the late-night game. My gosh, that was so late. Uh, game doesn't start after what nine o'clock. It ends after one a.m. Uh, that was a hard watch for those of us who are not used to staying up quite so late. But uh, nonetheless, a very entertaining football game if we were able to get through it. Uh, Washington beats Texas, and of course, in the earlier game, the Rose Bowl. Alabama loses to Michigan. So we're going to bounce through a, you know, a few of the thoughts here on this. Let me start with the game we saw most recently, the late night game, and then we'll work to perhaps the game that probably mattered the most to Georgia fans, that Michigan-Alabama game in the Rose Bowl. So let's start with the uh, most recent game and kind of work our way backwards to what happened a little earlier than that. Obviously, Texas loses this game, and in some respects, I think you're going to be able to say, well, did Steve Sarkeesian really kind of call the kind of game that you expect a really sharp play caller like this to have? And did Texas involve its great wide receivers as well as it possibly could have? Georgia fans know full well you know, how good A.D. Mitchell can be in the big games, and he got worthy there as well. And it just sort of seemed like maybe, you know, perhaps Texas didn't fully unlock the achievement that those guys are able to produce, and maybe that's the case, and Texas fans will have to spend some time thinking about that over the course of the offseason. But I think from a kind of Georgia-centric perspective and sort of an SEC-centric perspective here for a moment, I think you have to conclude that Texas accomplished something very real this year, that getting to the college football playoff, playing a, you know, tightly contested game against Washington coming up a little bit short, I think gives Texas much more cachet coming into the SEC for next year. I think when you go back and look at what Texas was when it was first announced they were coming to the league, this is a team that had not won the Big 12 since 2009. The whole joke about Texas is back. The you know the way in which it seems like they were overhyped every year, only to fall short during the season. I think Texas has shaken a lot of that off by the way in which uh, they performed last night, and I think that Texas will enter into the SEC with a level of performance on the field that somewhat fits the brand that Longhorns fans sort of think is already in place with that team anyway. Like next year in a expanded sixteen team SEC, I think there are obviously three teams that have a category far different than anybody else. It's clearly Georgia who won, you know, the last two national championships leading into uh, this postseason, Alabama because of what they've done long-term under Nick Saban, and Texas because of what they are right now, a team that also made the college football playoff. And the line after Texas to whatever's next, LSU or Tennessee or that program, Oklahoma, that line and that chasm is pretty wide right now. That this is a kind of a, in terms of the elite level of prestige, the SEC next season will be a three, sort of three teams in the category of themselves. 
Georgia, Alabama, and Texas, and Texas, based on the way that it played this year, I think has earned its way into that conversation in terms of when you play Texas, it's obviously going to be a really big game and not just a big game because they have a lot of fans and not just a big game because you get the chance to prove how overrated they are, you know, based on the way that Texas has played this season. I don't quite know that you get a chance to say that as much. I'll also say one more thing about the Longhorns and I'll move on. When you see what you saw from Quinn Ewers last night and, you know, there were moments to make big throws that I don't know that he necessarily made the big throws that I kind of expected him to make in a game like this. I thought that he might go sort of, you know, nose to nose with Michael Penix, one of those classic sort of, you know, cowboy style gunfight, uh, you know, sh- uh, shootout showdown type thing. And that, that yours might be able to match Penix throw for throw. Obviously last night was not able to do that. So if you want to kind of propel yourself into the off season here for a moment, ask yourself this is the version of Quinn yours. We saw last night. Is that guy going to be capable of holding off Arch Manning for a full season next year? I don't know. Right now, it seems like Ewers is slated to come back. And it seems like Manning, who made it clear this week in New Orleans that he has no intentions of leaving. He's happy where he is. But the version of Ewers we saw last night, who you know was one of the more hyped quarterbacks coming into the season and has had a good year, obviously. But last night was not a special player. Is that guy going to be able to hold off Arch Manning for a full year in 2024? Could be worth watching. Now, the flip side of this is obviously the throwing performance from Washington. And Washington is kind of an amazing team because, what was it, nine, ten you know, uh, wins for them this year? They're like one-score type games. They just seemingly always play close games. They seemingly find a way to win those games, and they kind of do it in thrilling fashion. And I think there's an element to which America was pretty thrilled by Washington here last night. And, you know, they've uh, they've obviously got amazing wide receiver play. Those guys are able to go out there and they'll make it like one circus catch after another. But it was also Michael Penix last night kind of being a little bit more like the version of himself that we saw back in, like, say, September, where like October, November, I don't know that we were seeing that version of Penix a whole lot. I think he was probably banged up or he was just playing, you know, less effectively. But one way or another, the Penix we saw last night sort of reflected the best of Penix that we saw at you know various points during the early portion of the season. And in, in so many ways, you know, Penix, who I think there's kind of a reconsideration of, well, maybe, maybe this guy should have won the Heisman Trophy. Maybe, maybe he should have been recognized as the best quarterback in the sport. And, you know, it's a little bit difficult to go back and kind of relitigate that now, but there is some chatter about that. The other thing that kind of pops up here as it relates to the kind of the Penix story from last night is in so many ways, it kind of feels like the modern college football story. Here's a guy that rose to some prominence at Indiana during a pandemic year. Amazingly, Penix with the Hoosiers got them into the top 10 in a very weird year nonetheless, but kind of got them to that spot. Then he transferred and teamed up with a much better program with the Huskies, and all of a sudden now you're talking about one of college football's great players. And it seems like this is the blueprint that so many teams are trying to find, which is it's hard to recruit great quarterbacks out of high school. Even if you get a great quarterback out of high school, in the day and age of the transfer portal, it is perhaps hard to keep them for the entirety of their college career. But that's okay. We can go out and we can get our own Michael Penix in the transfer portal, and that guy can come here, and we can have great success with him no matter where he is in a given moment. This just sort of feels like the modern story. But as I'm watching Washington last night, the one thing that kind of came to mind for me is, is how perhaps not replicable, or replicable, I should say, that's the right word, not replicable, this Washington story perhaps is when you see other instances in college football of teams and programs who've tried to do similar things but have had nowhere near the same results. What's the disclaimer they always give in the advertisement? Past performance is not indicative of future results. You know, in the case of Washington getting Penix and, and taking that transfer quarterback to great fame, Look at all the other teams that are trying to do that across the country and around America, and look at how few of them have actually been able to replicate that. We've got now like two years worth of you know examples of you know teams really in search of a game-changing transfer quarterback, and oftentimes those guys are just not there. Pretty underwhelming crop of transfer quarterbacks a year ago. Teams had to settle for the. Peyton Thorns or the Graham Mertzes, no disrespect to those guys, but that's the level of quarterback the teams that hope to be contenders and hope to be competitive had to settle for because there just wasn't the great quarterback out there. And this year's transfer portal situation kind of looks the same way. We're going to talk more about Cam Ward uh, leaving Washington State and perhaps going on to the NFL here in a moment. A few minutes from now, 
But, you know, that's an example of, well, this was supposed to be the closest thing we had this year to a, to a Michael Penix-like transfer. And it almost seems like he's just not satisfied with the market that's out there, NIL, whatever else. And so, therefore, he's thinking about moving on the NFL. Uh, that that the idea that some team's going to go out and get their Michael Penix the same way that Washington did, that seems like what everybody wants to do, but ultimately it proves just to not be, you know, that easy of a thing to take play. So, that's kind of my thought from the, la- the 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 late game last night. Texas falls short, but I do believe that Texas did a lot to restore its brand here this season. Washington moves on, and it is an amazing, amazing accomplishment for Kalen DeBoer and for Michael Penix. I think they you know provide the chance for a really thrilling contrast of styles in the national championship. They obviously give a big boost to the brand new Big Ten Pacific Northwest additions there, both Oregon and Washington. I think greatly changed the landscape of the Big Ten, and I think we'll be hearing from them in this new league, but I'm not really quite so sure the Washington blueprint is going to be all that copyable by other teams across the country that might like to do it. Now, with that said, let's move to the game that probably had more interest from Georgia fans than the uh, the late-night game did, first of all, because not, I don't know how many Georgia fans were able to step to 1 a.m. to watch the conclusion of the Sugar Bowl, but everybody you got the impression was watching the Rose Bowl. And there are a handful of takeaways on this game. And for me, almost all of these kind of point back to things that that we'll probably be talking about as it relates to Georgia for quite some time. Let me begin this way. I grew up for a couple of decade period of time in which Georgia lost a lot of games to Florida. It's probably one of the reasons why we do all the Gator Hater stuff on the show the way we do. One of the reasons when we kind of push that as a narrative as, as frequently as we do. Uh, just because if you're about my age and you grew up seeing Georgia losing all those games, that became a very hard thing to endure year after year after year. And my perspective on those Georgia losses to Florida way back then was always that when that first sort of started in the 90s and into the early 2000s, part of the reason that Georgia was never beating Florida wasn't some sort of like mental hang up or, you know, Florida's in Georgia's head or Jacksonville's cursed or whatever else. It just sort of happened that at the time, Florida was a way better program. As much as it pains me to say that, you know, Florida had historic coaches, the likes of uh, Steve Spurrier, and then eventually giving way to the, you know, the likes of Urban Meyer. In some of those cases, Florida was just a better program and having far better teams. The rise of Steve Spurrier sort of coincided with probably the worst streak of Georgia football over a period of years and maybe of all time, certainly in a very, very long time. And so, therefore, that allowed Florida to build great success against Georgia. But eventually, that losing streak or that long series of losses for Georgia against Florida also started to happen when it sort of seemed like Georgia was the better team and, and Florida was was a much lesser opponent in comparison to Georgia, and yet somehow the Gators still found a way to win that game. I have to admit, watching Alabama play last night, I got a little bit of a deja vu feeling about that, where, you know, when when Georgia first started doing battle against Nick Saban teams, you know, uh, of Alabama. Very easy to conclude. Well, listen, right now, Saban's just a better coach. Alabama's just a better program. And it's understandable that Georgia's losing some of those games because of how good Alabama is. But when you see the version of Alabama we saw playing last night against Michigan, boy, hard not to think, man, Georgia really let one slip away against a not great, not dominant version of Alabama. Georgia really let this one get away against an Alabama team based on the way it played against Michigan and based on the way that it played a lot here this season. Georgia really let it get away against an Alabama team that should have beaten. And it was a reminder of some of those like the late stage Florida wins against Georgia before Kirby Smart really got it cooking, like Jim McElwain years, uh, you know, 2015, 2016, 2014, back when Will Muschamp was still coach there, or, you know, some of the stuff involving Ron Zook, 2003, you know, some of those losses for Georgia against Florida, where you sort of sort of had to wonder, is this sort of in your head? Is this sort of a, not a curse, but some sort of like a mental block about going out there and just being the better team when you obviously are on paper the better team. I mean, the Alabama team that I saw last night was not a special football team. And Jalen Noro is not a special football player. He's just not. He's good. But the deference that Georgia showed to Milrow in that SEC championship is so frustrating by, you know, 
by comparison, when you see how incapable Tommy Reese, the offensive coordinator, Miller, who was the quarterback in charge of that game plan on the field, when you see how incapable that team was last night to move the football against Michigan and, and you know, put up offense and put up points, you know, the fact that Georgia sat there, you know, as the you know, smart people tell you, with a, you know, like almost like a double spy doing everything it could to keep Milrow in the pocket because it was so afraid of what Milrow would do if he sort of, you know, took off and ran. But it's just too careful. It's just, it's just too, you know, just too, too much deference being showed to Jalen Milrow in that particular situation. In fact, you know, Michigan last night, I have him for like six sacks, six sacks. That's the sort of pass rush that Georgia needed to show in that game. And you'd like to think they would have been capable of doing. Now, it is also a, a possibility that Michigan up front defensively this year is just better than what Georgia was. We would all agree there's been a little bit of a drop off for Georgia defensively this season in comparison to, you know, what it's been like the last couple of years, the absence of those sort of first round pick style defensive linemen. An example of that, you know, Jalen Carter, you know, no, certainly no, you know, what you had there in 2021, you had four different first round picks playing there on the defensive line. So perhaps this year, Michigan just has a better defensive front than Georgia does. And that's what allowed the Wolverines to uh, get after Jalen Miller as well as they did. Man, last night, you're just left to conclude and it, it, it's going to, it's going to, you know, put you in a little bit of a bad mood, I think. But you're sort of left to conclude that Georgia let one slip away against an Alabama team that is a far cry from the very best of versions of what the Crimson Tide was against Alabama. And perhaps a defensive game plan that was just a little bit too careful against a quarterback that's honestly probably not worth that level of respect that a lot of that contributed to what ultimately went down. Let me give you a couple more thoughts here and then we'll kind of uh, sort of shift gears here for a little bit. Speaking of like weird decisions by uh, Tommy Reese, the Alabama offensive coordinator and kind of a lackluster performance from Jalen Milrow overall. Obviously the best example of that is in that sort of final fourth down play there at the end of the game where both teams traded timeouts in overtime. And ultimately Alabama essentially just does just kind of a run up the middle. Uh, and you know, I think we're left to debate and we'll talk to Connor more about this in a minute. Like what was the real true thing there? Was that the Alabama play call play call was Milrow forced to do that because of another low snap? There were so many of those during the game, and perhaps with Alabama run to you know kind of try to execute a different play, if not for the low snap, I think there's going to be a little bit of a reconsideration of that over the course of the next couple of days, probably the next couple of weeks, especially coming from Tide fans. But you know, Alabama fans, I think, are rightful to be frustrated based on you know after a couple of timeouts where there was clearly a chess match going on, a game within the game. Ultimately, Michigan forced Alabama to do something that. Simple, that straightforward, and frankly, that easy to stop. That was not a good moment for Tommy Reese and Jalen Milrow there at the uh, end of the game. Now, let me kind of finish with this. I'm going to get to some of the latest Georgia news of the day in a moment. We'll bring on Connor Riley there as well. So we're set up now for mo- next Monday in Houston, a national championship game between Washington and Michigan. So for the first time since 2014, there's not an SEC an SEC team in the national championship game. Uh, obviously, that's kind of an interesting thing. And, you know, for the first time, it seems like forever, you know, there's a very northern feel to the national championship. Washington way up in the Pacific Northwest, Michigan way up in the north part of the uh, country. So this is not a very deep south, southern themed national championship, which is a very, very different thing from what we've seen in college football in most of recent years. But nonetheless, the other, I think, interesting sort of aspect of this national championship game is the fact that you've got a Michigan team and a Washington team that feel very different. They, they're constructed very differently. And putting aside the sort of Michigan sign ceiling stuff, and the fact that a lot of people, I think, root against Michigan because of that, in addition to that, I think you've got a lot of folks across America who are going to want to root for Washington because Washington is more fun to, to watch. That Washington's got, you know, the the great collection of receivers and Michael Penix and, you know, just a fun style of play. They play these thrilling, very close football games. By comparison, Michigan is a little bit more, you know, kind of nuts and bolts, very much in the physicality. Jim Harbaugh's very boring. Michigan sort of plays at a deliberate pace. Michigan rarely trails in any game. They trailed against Alabama almost as much as they trailed for the entire season combined. They're just a lot more, most people would say, kind of boring. But we would also say this, is that 
Michigan also reminds you a little bit of the way that Georgia played as well. Georgia values physicality. Georgia values smart football players. And a lot of what Michigan has used to be where it is on next Monday night is the same kind of style, the same kind of philosophy that 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 Georgia also puts forth on, on a regular basis there as well. And what that leads me to say is, is that I think the interesting contrast with the national championship is Washington represents football the way people wish that it was or hope that it could be fun, exciting quarterbacks, fun, exciting wide receivers, a lot of points flying up and down the field. You know, anything can happen. This is wild. This is crazy. But by comparison, Michigan sort of represents football as it actually is. That's why I believe that Michigan will win the national championship game. And if you want some sort of like, I guess, hopeful final thought from the playoff games that were last night is that the team that may ultimately win the national championship, Michigan, at least the team that won last night, did so doing things much the same way Georgia does on a regular basis. That's why Georgia fans sort of circle back to the point we made to begin the whole to begin the whole conversation. That's why Georgia fans believe, obviously, it could have been them because Michigan's going to end up playing for a national championship doing it in a very similar way to where the Georgia does it. And if Georgia could have just taken care of its business a little bit better against the Alabama Crimson Tide, then perhaps it could have been those dogs there on a Monday night. And this is Dog Nation Daily. The daily podcast for Georgia Bulldogs fans presented today by Engineered Solutions of Georgia. We got Connor Riley ready to go here. We'll get to him in just a moment. Let me give a, give a quick shout out to ESOG before we get there. Foundation waterproofing issues. That is what Engineered Solutions of Georgia is all about for you. So if you've got water creeping in where it's not supposed to be, you see the evidence of that basement, crawl space, garage, Engineered Solutions of Georgia, that's a number you're going to want to dial. If you've got uh, foundation issues, you see the signs of that. Cracks on the outside of your house. I'm like, it's like a little stair step thing on the brick or the sheet rock is kind of cracking oftentimes like horizontal cracks on the inside or just the unsettled look down there in the basement. All of that, once again, a symbol that you need to give our friends at Engineered Solutions of Georgia to call. Now, there's good news about that. The number could not be easier to remember. Simply dial 678-ESOG now. That's 678-ESOG now. Uh, and Engineered Solutions Georgia will be a solution for your foundation, your waterproofing issues. Here's the other good news. They're longtime partners of, of uh, UGA. So it's great to support those who support UGA. And Engineered Solutions of Georgia has supported the dogs for a long time. It's fun to do business with companies like that. Plus, they are longtime friends of ours here on Dog Nation Daily as well. And we are truly grateful for their support and happy to have uh, them with us for a brand new year in 2024 there as well. So give them a call, 678-ESOG now. Uh, that's Engineered Solutions of Georgia, a solution for your foundation, your waterproofing issues. Proud partners of UGA, longtime friends here on Dog Nation Daily, our good friends, Engineered Solutions of Georgia. All right, let's bring on Connor Riley. We'll do a version around the doghouse with him here. Kind of extended thoughts from me on the college football playoff. I will get that coming up with Connor here, too. But, Connor, if you don't mind, let me also kind of begin with more of the uh, Georgia news of the last 24 hours, continuing what has been an incredible level of uh, news for UGA in the aftermath of the Sugar Bowl, as we expected. Yesterday, the big piece of news coming out. Once again, I think the the mood had been shifting this direction for quite some time, but Lad McConkey, the Georgia wide receiver, did make it official. He is now moving on to the NFL. Some of these, with that being said, posts hit a little, uh, hit a little harder than us. And in the case of uh, McConkie, this one certainly hit pretty hard yesterday because of how much fun he's been to watch. And if he would have come back for UGA, how important it could have been. So, Connor, before we get into the playoff action from last night, I know you've got a lot to say about that. How about the continued streak of news here for Georgia, most prominently Lad McConkie from yesterday? Yeah, I, I completely understand why Lad McConkie went pro. I actually kind of think he probably should have gone pro. I know and Lad will be the first to tell you this past season was extremely frustrating for him. Uh, back injury and ankle injury that I think really robbed him of being the best version of himself. And I think you can only look at what he did in that one play in the Orange Bowl where he races through a Florida State defense. And, you know, I can understand why fans would want to see that for another season. And, you know, the idea that, hey, you know, if he's able to put a full 15 games on on tape of him being healthy, that's going to help his draft stock tremendously. I would push back on some of that. Like one, he was injured for parts of last season. Those injury and durability concerns were still going to be an issue for him, especially because he's just not the biggest player and he's not going to magically grow to be 6'3", uh, 220 pounds next season. Two, 
Vlad McConkie has already graduated from UGA with a degree in finance. He has been an all-state. He was a member of the all-state uh, good hands team. He has done so much for the University of Georgia. He's been in this program for four years. He's already won two national championships. He's done it all. And lastly, I think you look at some of the rookie receivers this year that are having great years in the NFL. Hukunakua is the number one wide receiver from this rookie class. He was a fifth round pick. Jaden Reed for the Green Bay Packers has been a touchdown machine. He was a third round pick. In today's NFL, you don't necessarily need to go in the first round to be an impact wide receiver right away. And in fact, because of the way these contract structures are, if you're a guy like Puka Nakua and like Jaden Reed who are able to land in a good spot and go produce right away, because you're on a four-year deal, you have a better chance of getting your second contract even sooner than you would as a first-round pick there, despite some obvious, you know, less money up front there. So I think with Ladd and, you know, you could throw Javon Bullard in there as well, it would have been fantastic to have him come back. Uh, for anyone saying they should have come back, those are decisions for Ladd McConkie and Javon Bullard to make and own. And they've already given so much to this university that I am of the belief that you have to absolutely respect them and support them for that decision that they made there. Yeah, I think the McConkie thing is interesting because a, it's one of the great stories of how he rose to prominence after really being as lightly recruited as anybody that George probably had uh, would have been. He's also an incredible, just fun player to watch. His lateral quickness, his ability to get behind a defense incredibly fun player to watch. And yet the other thing that's kind of on my mind in relationship to all this is, is that Georgia faces a really big challenge in 2024. Brock Bowers had amazing statistical production and why you want to think about Bowers and what he represented for UGA and his presence on sort of the Mount Rushmore of this program and all that kind of stuff, historical significance that Brock has. There's also just some cold, hard facts. There's a stat line that sort of speaks to Brock's value to UGA and now it's going to be replaced. And if McConkey would have come back, and I don't disagree with anything you're saying, that it probably maybe makes sense for him to move on to the NFL right now. But selfishly speaking, if McConkey would have come back, well, replacing some of that Brock Bauer stat line would have just been much easier because Vlad actually didn't play very much this year. So that's numbers that you could have slotted into what Bowers has been giving you. And now with Ladd not here, I think it just makes the challenge of replacing the statistical productivity that Bowers provided. And I think it makes it that much tougher, not impossible or anything like that. I'm not being fatalistic here. I'm just saying it is no easy feat to replace statistically what Brock Bowers provided. You know, these are first world problems that Georgia gets to deal with. Uh, it wasn't easy to replace Jordan Davis and, and N'Kobe Dean. It wasn't easy to replace Jalen Carter. And in some ways they didn't replace Jalen Carter this past year. But I think when you look at just what this Georgia program has coming back and we'll stick on the offensive side of the ball here, like Dylan Bell to me is a guy and I'm going to write about him. I got some good stuff from him down in the bowl game. There is a guy that I think you have to, you know, in the way Brock, I think was the center point of your offense this past year. I think you need to make Dylan Bell similar to that. You know, the Debo comparisons are something that Dylan Bell has welcomed. I think Georgia should lean into that next year. I also think that at times this year, we saw some good stuff from Dominic Lovett in terms of him being a productive receiver. Can you get even more of that now that he's going to be moving into his second season here at Georgia? Rara Thomas is another guy, you know, injuries really derailed his end of the season there. Uh, there is some stuff to like in this wide receiver room. Anthony Evans, I think, has brings a unique element of speed that this group is missing. And, and Oscar Delp is a talented pass catcher as well. He's not Brock Bowers. And, and while I, I get your concerns with replacing the raw statistical production, you know, we did get to see this Georgia offense for stretches this year without Brock Bowers and at times Ladd McConkey and at times both of them. And Georgia still find a way to be a productive offense. And so with that in mind, I, I, I understand the worry. I understand that we're going to make a thing out of replacing that statistical production, not you, but me as well. And anyone who covers this program, I, to me at this point in time, I'm going to Kirby smart. I'm going to keep giving them the benefit of the doubt until they prove that replacing those types of players is a bigger issue. All right. One more thing on this. And then I want to get to the playoff stuff. Um, it's, we knew it was going to be like a flood of news coming at once. We've had several periods of that kind of December now turning into January. Uh, it was Zion Logue, as Margaret Sersmey Jack saying also yesterday there as well. Like what's next in all this? Like Senator Von Pond Granger, we know is eventually, you know, going to make his official announcement. Uh, like what is next? And are there, whether it be the transfer portal that say looking for two more days or like an unexpected draft declaration, like on behalf of Georgia fans who just want all this stuff to be over with. Like, 
how much more like buckle your seatbelt, hold on for a bumpy ride? Like how much more of this do Georgia fans you think have to endure? Yeah, as someone who's covering this right now, I, I'd like this to be over as well. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to try and run through this as quickly and efficiently as possible. We're going to start on the defensive side because that's just an easier place to start because there's less stuff there. There are three names on the defensive line that have NFL decisions to make at this point. Tieran Ingram Dawkins, who I expect to be back. He was not healthy this year. And when he was healthy, he showed that he could be a big player. I think a, a strong senior season from him will help tremendously. The two biggest ones left on, on my mind that, that can potentially come back are Warren Brinson and Nas Stackhouse. They have a chance to use that extra 2020 year, which was when they were freshmen and came in, and come back for another season. If Georgia's able to get both of those guys back, that is huge for that defensive line next season just because it's going to make them all the deeper, and you have guys that have played a ton of snaps at that position. They can both go pro. I think Stackhouse is someone who would be drafted in, say, like that second or third round range should he go pro based on what he's put on tape already. But we'll see if he wants to come back for another year. Warren Brinson I was put, I would put in the same boat, and it would not surprise me if both those guys come back. Flipping over to the offensive side, Cedric Von Pran's already accepted a, a, a senior bowl invite. Like he's gone. He just needs to yeah. make a formal announcement. He should get to that. Brock Bowers is going to be a first round pick. He's not coming back either. So those two guys are done uh, pretty easily there. On the offensive line, Tate Ratledge and Xavier Truss have decisions to make. It sounds like Tate is leaning towards coming back. And, you know, if, if a second team All-American wants to come back and play for you for another year, that, that makes your offensive line all the better. He can sort of be, I think, that Cedric-like leader for this offensive line next season. Trust I'm a little bit more skeptical that he's going to come back, one, because it's not sort of set in stone where he would play next season as he moved around quite a bit for this Georgia offensive line this year. And he's been in this program since 2019. And at a certain point, I do think you probably want to move on to that next level there. And then sort of wrapping things up, the wide receiver position, uh, Dominic Lovett and Ra Ra Thomas and Arian Smith all have NFL decisions to make there. I would maybe expect, as we sit here today, for all three of those guys to come back for Georgia next season, be the leader. Arian Smith taking advantage of that 2020 COVID season. And then T Lovett and Thomas, you know, getting a second year in this program, I think would be very beneficial for the two of them there. That is an outstanding answer, really, really wide-ranging, but also very, very easy to follow. So, Connor, I really commend you for a very strong answer there on that. Let's move to last nine. And I kind of said this, I don't remember if I said this with like the first and 50 audience of the audience overall, but there was a moment last night where I sort of stopped being like a salty Georgia fan that was just sort of bitter about my team not being there and allowed myself just to be a football fan because as a football fan, I got a lot out of the CFP semifinal games last night. It's a weird irony that after 10 years of this, they finally gave us like two amazing games right in like the last vestiges of this current format. But, um, you know, no matter how like, you know, salty I am about, you know, Georgia not being there and perhaps having itself to blame for why it's not. Um, once you kind of push past that, this was good football last night. At least it was at least very entertaining football. Perhaps that's the better way to say it. I think there there's an exact point in time when Georgia fans should have stopped being salty. And believe me, like I'm sitting there watching them. Like if this is the Alabama team that Georgia played in the SEC championship game, even before they gave up those late touchdowns, like if that's the team Georgia had played in the SEC championship game, Georgia's in the college football playoff yesterday. Mm -hmm. Alabama played their cleanest game of the season against Georgia. Georgia played their worst game. And that's why they lost that game by three points. Uh, there was a moment, I think, when you let that saltiness fade away, when Michigan's getting the ball back down seven, it's the reason the NFL is as big as it is, because you get that every single week yeah. in college, especially against top ranked teams. You don't often get that because of the talent mismatches. So they're like, all right, let's just enjoy this drive and yeah. see what can happen here. And J.J. McCarthy delivered in Michigan finds a way to win a game they probably shouldn't have won. And, and Jalen Milrow made a, some some mistakes in that game. And, uh, you know, Seth McLaughlin had some issues with snaps that I think hurt that Alabama team. And the defense, not too dissimilar from what we saw in that SEC championship game, by the way. They couldn't get stops late and get off the field. And, and so Michigan is able to win a game that they probably shouldn't have won and are now playing for a national championship. Not too dissimilar, in my opinion, from what Georgia did last year against Ohio State. And, and then in the second game, Washington was just the better football team for 55 minutes and then yeah. spent the final five minutes of that game just desperately trying to give it away. Uh, you know, I, there were a lot of comments out there about Jermaine Burton yesterday. There's a part of me that wishes the Georgia fans would just ignore him and not give him the attention. I think he's so rightly, not mm -hmm. rightly, that, that he wants and craves and sort of yeah. leans into there. Uh, it, it's just not a good look for the fan base. But then I will say, I do think, and I know not everyone loved the way that AD left and where and how he left for Texas. As just a fan of college football, as a fan of sports, 
it's really cool to have a player playing five college football playoff games and catch touchdowns in all of them. Like we That's amazing. see that ever again. Like, and so, you know, it was two great games and, you know, look, college football is changing. It has not been a good past month for this sport. I like you, I think I'm worried about, you know, where this sport is heading, but to get those games on January 1st, which is a day that I think college football gets to own in the calendar. Yeah. I think it was a nice throwback because as great as those playoff games were, there was the LSU Wisconsin game. Uh, there was an Iowa under cashing for the last time. Uh, it was just, it was a really great day for a college football fan overall. All right. I've got so much I want to talk to you about. I'm going to try to keep this, you know, somewhat you know manageable time wise final play of the Alabama game. I'll, tell me what you think is going on there. First of all, this is fascinating because you got the Michigan and Bama both trading timeouts. I believe I sort of understood what that was about, about the eye candy sort of spreading wide with the idea of are you leaving the middle of the field too soft and open? It seems like that was the kind of thing we could all kind of play along with uh, as we were watching that. And then it's the low snap. It's Milrow straight ahead. Was this a Milrow force because of the low snap or was this just a really bad play decision by Tommy Reeves? I think it was Milrow dropping his eyes to go get the snap. And, and, and I can, and I feel like, and again, didn't play at a college level, but I did snap at, Mm -hmm. you know, and I did play center at the highest levels of the Georgia high school football. Uh, And, you know, when you, because McLaughlin, he's had issues snapping throughout the season and he was having them earlier in that game as well. And, when you start, you know, having one or two of those, it, it just sticks in your brain. And like it, it happens to every center. Cedric Van Pran had snap issues. Yeah. You play this position long enough, it, it's the way it goes. And I think clearly it, McLaughlin was in his head a little bit. And you know, sometimes walking to the line, you're just like trying so hard to focus and do that. And, and like it wasn't an awful snap. It wasn't, you know, something that Milro necessarily had to do everything. But I think when he went down to get the snap, he just dropped his eyes for a second to focus on the ball. And I think that gummed up the entire play there because I think in seeing some of the replays, there was an RPO there that had been available and Alabama maybe had the numbers. But Milro, who I thought just did not play well at all yesterday, uh, you know, if you want, if you want to chuckle, go search Bill O'Brien uh, on Twitter. <laughs> Uh, you know, I don't necessarily think he was wrong in his assessment of Milrow and how he played as a quarterback. Till Milrow didn't have a hundred yards passing until the final minute of regulation in that game. Yeah, and you know, Michigan's defense did, I think, a great job against him. And in relaying this back to Georgia a little bit, the biggest difference in my mind, and sort of thinking on this, Michigan had two NFL inside linebackers yesterday. They were able to, I think, blitz effectively and control the middle of the field. For large portions of that SEC championship game, Georgia had two freshmen out there and Raylan Wilson and CJ Allen and, and Smile Monday was just very clearly not himself uh, in that game. And you're missing Jamon Dumas Johnson as well there. I think that's a big difference why Jalen Milrow looks so different and why Michigan was able to be so much more aggressive in the way they went after Milrow. But that final play there, I think Melrow drops his eyes to go pick up the snap. And from that play, he's just like, I'm just going to run straight through up the middle because that's where he was. That's where he is most effective as a runner, his ability to sort of bob and weave throughout there. And Michigan, to his credit, just had it stuffed. You and I exchanged some texts about this last night. Hardest thing to watch from the perspective of a Georgia fan were, I think, six Michigan sacks of Jalen Milrow. One of two things is true, and one of two things, perhaps both of these things are true, it's got to change for Georgia. Georgia's either got to be more aggressive with its defensive game plan in a situation like that again. You can't sit back and let Milrow have all day to do whatever. Georgia was way too careful, and perhaps – you know, consistent with decisions this program has made in the past, way too careful with how it defended Jalen Miller. And that's perhaps also true that Michigan just has a better defensive front than Georgia this year. I mean, I think that's probably is true. But Georgia also, I believe, had the defensive firepower to be more impactful against Milrow. And they gave way too much deference to a player that I think showed you last night. He's just simply not worth it. Yes. Uh, that last point there is the biggest one that I, I think – I, I agree with. I do think Michigan has a better defensive front than Georgia does this year in injuries and, you know, just the roster churn. They're like, Michigan's going to lose a lot off of this team next year and it's going to be hard for them to replace that. But I just think Georgia was too differential when it comes to Jalen Monroe and what he was able to do. It looked like they still had four sacks in that game against Alabama. And, you know, in thinking of that and watching what Michigan did, 
I, I do think that they could have had more had they played better and had they played more aggressively. And, you know, you and I have talked about this before, like long times ago. This is uh, going into that 2021 season when you and I spent a good chunk of that offseason talking about the need to get to 40 sacks, something yeah. we actually did that season. You know, I think Kirby Smart at times, because he is a defensive backs, you know, that is that is where he has made his money primarily. He sometimes coaches to protect those guys yeah. and protect the back end of the secondary. And, and I think that's why you see them talk so much about not giving up explosive plays and limiting explosive plays. Well, that tends to happen with in your secondary there. And I think you sometimes sacrifice a little bit being more aggressive with your front. And in watching that Michigan game yesterday, you know, a, a big difference, I think, and you, you said this. Georgia was very deferential when it came to Jalen Monroe and they were like, we want you to beat him to beat us from the pocket. And he showed he was just capable enough to do that. Michigan, on the other hand, said, we don't care. Uh, you know, if you get a couple of scrambles on us and get a pick and pick up a couple of first downs, we're going to keep coming after you for the entirety of this game and making things difficult on you and speeding up that clock and making him think and make decisions quickly. It was a very different game plan than what Georgia had. And for the most part, you know, Georgia, I think, has been a more conservative defense post Dan Lanning than they were when they had Lanning there. I'm very interested going into this offseason, what maybe changes with Glenn Schumann as the defensive coordinator. They're not that you know, he's going to lose the job or anything like that, obviously, but schematically, stylistically, what changes does Georgia make? Because I, I do think that this Georgia defense, maybe it was a talent thing this year because they just experienced so many losses. And they just weren't as deep or as experienced in that front seven as they had been in years past. I do think Georgia needs to, especially against Jalen Monroe, because they're going to see him in September next year, do things a little differently in terms of the way that they attack him. So I think here's one of the things you got to keep in mind in a discussion like this. A couple of things. A, you know, Chuck Smith, who's now the outside linebackers coach of the Baltimore Ravens, used to come on this show years ago in kind of a previous iteration of this show. And he talked a lot about that, about the fact that this was a very defensive back centric game plan that Georgia put forth and that they needed to have a little bit more of a pass rush culture. Now, I don't know if Chuck was right when he said that, but I do know he knows a lot more about this kind of stuff than I do. And he coaches in the NFL now. So his opinion is probably worth, you know, uh, listening to there on that. The other thing is. For everything you want to say about Dan Lanning and the 49 sacks that Georgia had when he was defensive coordinator here in 2021, this was a team that was also pretty aggressive with the pass rush in 2020 when Lanning kind of, I think, more fully asserted himself as the defensive coordinator. That's a weird year. It's mostly forgotten the time. Georgia was not a great defense in 2020, and perhaps this you know, relatively successful pass rush was almost solely due to the fact they had Aziz Ojolari, who was a very good individual pass rusher. Well, that's also an example of when Lanning was here, not just the, the historic defense in 2021, but even in 2020, Georgia just showed a little bit more of an aggressive nature rushing the passer than they have any time prior to Lanning and kind of any time since then as well. Yeah, the farther we get from 2020, the more that year, and you were on this early to your credit, like the more that year you just you throw it out and anything you take from that year. And I think it was very clear that season. It was just harder to play defense because you're not getting the practice time that you had been comparatively speaking. And so when it comes to Georgia and the pass rush, and like part of this too, it is a it was a personnel issue this year. Uh, you know, Marvin Jones Jr. and some of those guys in the outside linebacker room hadn't developed the way that uh, the staff had wanted them to, and they're turning it over. It's going to be a young room again next season. You know, yes, you bring back Chaz Chambliss, but he's not a, a primary pass rusher on obvious passing situations there. Uh, you know, they're going to ask a lot of Damon Wilson, Gabe Harris, Sam and Pemba there in mm -hmm. terms of what they're going to be able to do. I'll be really interested in seeing what they continue to do with Jalen Walker. But even with some of the stuff on the defensive front uh, in terms of, you know, playing up the middle there, like Michael Williams had a big looping sack in that game against Florida State. It, we don't see those types of stunts often from yeah on the defensive line. Now I understand that takes a long time for those stunts to sort of develop there, but even things like that, being more aggressive with your defensive tackles in terms of giving them the ability to penetrate and rush up field as opposed to staying gap discipline in the pass coverage game and not allow scrambles. I do think that that's something that's important to watch going forward, along with the fact that it looked like the Georgia linebackers this year didn't play up to the standard that they had in years past. And obviously part of that is injuries. Small Munden was not himself this season. Jamon Dumas Johnson missed the last four games there. Uh, and you're relying on freshmen and CJ on and Raylan Wilson in a way Kirby smart has said, you don't want to be relying on freshmen in that way. 
I think going into next season, you're going to need those guys to be aggressive and be important parts of that pass rush because pretty consistently throughout their tenure here at Georgia under Kirby Smart, the inside linebackers have been Georgia's most impactful pass rushers on a year-by-year basis just because of the way they use them. I would expect and if you're a Georgia fan wanting more a more aggressive pass rush, that's going to be something you're going to need to see next season. I want to talk about the other game uh, for a minute here, and I said this before you joined us, that everybody wants their Michael Penix. Like You watch Washington do what it did, veteran quarterback who had had some success in Indiana, going to Washington, turning a good team into a special team. Everyone's going to want their Michael Penix. Everyone probably does want it, you know, Michael Penix in terms of the transfer quarterback, which is sort of an easy button that just changes the fortune of your program. But kind of, we're going on two years of there not being a special quarterback in the transfer portal. Maybe Cam Ward could have been there. I'm going to talk more about what I think the Ward story means for the uh, nature of transfer NIL here in a, in, in a bit. But we're going on two years now of there just not being sort of a kingmaker transfer immediate championship contender quarterback out there. I think the interesting thing to watch about Washington last night, a thrilling team playing another thrilling game is how not replicable. I think any of this seems to be for the rest of college football, because other teams are trying it and they can't get there. Now, by the way, to your credit, you were on this for the season began. Caitlin DeBoer, clearly one of the rising star coaches. Uh, you had Washington as a playoff team. You deserve a lot of credit for that. But Penix, who's been so special, you know, getting the ball to the Bruins, uh, around the Bruins and all that kind of stuff. Other teams going out and finding their Penix, I just don't know how easy that's going to be because if it was easy, someone else besides Washington would have done it by now. Yeah, I, one, as we get farther into the transfer portal, I have a better understanding of what's there. Like the best guys this year, you know, Riley Leonard, yeah, Dylan Gabriel, like those guys aren't exactly setting the world on fire. Like Florida State, they go and grab DJ Uyunglele. Uh, you know, USC, we'll see what they end up doing if they grab Will Howard. Miami is now left grasping for sort of straws here. I'm interested, you know, in the quarterback thing, like Penix was a guy who he was not thought to be a slam dunk choice, you know, had multiple injuries in his time at Indiana and didn't leave, you know, in the greatest place. Uh, you and I were texting during this game yesterday and it was an observation you made. And it's one that I've long held about this team. And it's something that uh, this might come off as a take quake, but. Give me Roma Dunze, Jalen Polk and Jalen McMillan. Like those guys are every bit as good as like the Devontae Smith, Jalen Waddell, Jerry Judy, Alabama receivers. Those guys, I think, deserve a ton of credit. And Kalen DeBoer's ability to identify those guys, develop those guys, and turn those guys into absolute weapons uh, are just as much for Penix responsible for Penix's success as Penix himself is. And so to have all those guys make impactful plays last night, uh, I think was really big. And then Washington, as they sort of have been all year, there have been times when they look amazing. And then there are situations where you're just like, are you trying to give away the game here? They tried <laughs> to do it against Oregon the first time they met. Uh, they played close games against bad Arizona State and Stanford teams. And, and you know, Texas has a chance to win that game late there. Uh, I, I do think that for the majority of the game, Washington was just the better team and, and they had some glitchy things there. But I think to see them win, like if you're going to try and replicate that transfer portal model, it's a lot harder. And I do think that like, look, like Jalen Milrow, Quinn Ewers, although Quinn Ewers is technically a transfer, but his whole his whole recruitment, his whole college story is just so weird. Um, You know, J.J. McCarthy, I think the McCarthy Milrow model is much more replicable and and something that teams, you know, especially teams that are going to be in the college football playoff should try and follow because, and this is something I think we talked about down in Miami. Once you sort of get on this transfer quarterback portal thing where you, all right, we're going to take him for one year. It becomes hard to come off of it. Right. I mean, Notre Dame do this for a couple cycles. Now Kentucky has done this for a while now. And, and as I think you see, even Kentucky is a good example of this. Like sometimes you're just going to get a lemon out of the portal. And I think that's what Devin Leary was this year. And it becomes hard to consistently rely on that because you just don't know what's going in year in, year out. Transfer uh, portal quarterbacks are sort of like Ozempic. Once you start, you can't stop. (laughs) Anyway, uh, so last thing uh, for you here on the Texas side of this here for a moment. Here's what I'll tell you is I think the overall vibe around Texas, and you just have to be honest about this, the overall vibe around Texas when it actually enters the SEC 
for next year is so different than it was perhaps perceived to be when it was first announced a couple of years ago that they were coming. When they were first you know, announced to come, I think there were a lot of SEC fans, rightly so, probably are like, we're about to show this Texas bunch how overrated they are and how tough it is in the SEC. And all of that is totally understandable, given just how you know inflated and pompous some sort of the, the Texas stuff has been. But I know they lost last night, but Connor, Texas proved something here this year. And this was a very good Texas team that played sort of, I would say, a kind of an SEC style in handling its business in the Big 12. And Steve Sarkeesian, at one point in time, was sort of an also-ran head coach and obviously had some other issues that, you know, kind of away from the football field. But he's also, I think, proved himself to be capable of leading a high-level organization here. And I think next year with Texas and the SEC – I think that Texas is in the category of, like, say, Alabama and Georgia as the biggest games, the biggest programs, worthy of respect, even from a Georgia going to Austin next year for Georgia is going to be a very big deal. You know, this is not one of these deals of, ha, 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 Texas is back. Let's go show them how overrated they are. You know, I think that Texas is back, and they lost last night. But this is a very, very formidable program in the SEC, immediately leaping ahead of, LSU for now, certainly Tennessee. The other teams are kind of like hoping to be at that level and thinking they're on the rise. Texas has easily, easily outdistanced them right now. As correct as I was about Washington this season, I'll take the L on Texas. I wanted to see them go out there and do it and play winning football week in, week out. And to Steve Sarkeesian's credit, he got this team to do that. They're going to lose a lot of guys off this team at some key positions you know Eddie Mitchell probably going to the draft Xavier Worthy and a really talented receiver likely is as well that defensive line that I think was a big reason for their success this year is losing some key pieces there but you look at the way they've recruited the way they've built this team specifically through the offensive line this is going to be a Texas team that is going to come in next year and I think be equipped to play SEC level football week in week out. It's not to say they're going to go 11 and one and they're going to play in the SEC championship game, but they're going to be able to more than hold their own. And more than that, you know, there's going to be some adjustment to playing a tougher schedule where you are closer in terms of talent every week than you are when you're playing K-States and Texas Techs and Baylor's of the world. But this year, uh, you know, with the way Texas went about playing, with the way they went, you know, wire to wire with a very good Washington team, you know, Quinn Ewers sounds like he's going to come back for another year. Uh, you know, the way that they went about this season I, really impressed me. I, I think they fairly and finally have changed the perception about them. Uh, this is not a soft football team. And I think you see that last night with them fighting all the way to the end of the game there. I think that this is a Texas team that they know how to sort of recruit and both use the portal to their advantage, use their resources wisely. And so I, I think this is a Texas team who you're going to welcome them in and they're going to be a team you're, you're going to be competing against, not just to win SEC titles, but to win national titles as well. Very last thing you can make the answer short if you'd like. You know, I saw yours last night sort of missed the moment. I thought he had a chance to make some bigger throws. Uh, didn't necessarily do that. Do you think he can hold off Arch Manning for a full year in 2024? I do. I have some questions about Arch just in terms of, and look, I know, and I understand a lot of people are going to want to see him. You were still made some pretty impressive throws last night. The throw to Whittington to get them down there close to the red zone. I, you know, that's a, that's an NFL level throw there. He's got to be more consistent. Uh, and, and I think sometimes he's, and this is getting way too inside quarterback here. Uh, you know, like JJ McCarthy, just is fastball, everything sometimes, Ewers is a little bit too reliant on his ball placement and his ability to sort of moonball it in there. I, I think you'd like to see him change speeds a little bit more. But I, I think, you know, let's not lose sight of the fact that Quinn Ewers did a lot of really good things last night for Texas. And I know everyone is going to want to see Arch. I, I still, you know, like if you're telling me you're going to pass on a guy that has two full years of starting experience that's played in a college football game that has won a Big 12 title game. You're going to pass on that for an unknown. That That's that's difficult for me to swallow there. That is a fair point, Connor. You've done a great job here over the course of the last few weeks. It's amazing how fast this news cycle continues to spin. Georgia fans are obviously uh, hungry for all the news that's out there. You've done a great job providing it. And also just really fascinating insight on what I thought was two really fun football games last night. So thank you for being here, Connor. Uh, showing your face on camera here for a sort of a weird appearance on Dog Nation Daily as well. We will look forward to getting a chance to talk to you very soon as well. Yep, as always, it was a pleasure.
good stuff there from Connor Riley. I was waiting for the music. We're not doing that here right now, but uh, but really good stuff from uh, Connor Riley. Uh, thoughts on those two college football playoff games from last night. And we'll get ready to transition to cruising around the SEC, courtesy of Royal Caribbean here. And I'll say one more thing quickly as we get ready to do that. You know, one of the things you can't help but notice is, okay, well, the national championship game is now going to be a current Big Ten team against a future Big Ten team. And Washington and Oregon have clearly reignited the idea of college football in the Pacific Northwest. Now, that's a portion, a region of our country that has cared about college football, perhaps more people realize anyway. It's a little bit different than some of the other parts of the West. I mean, you know, Washington's got a real fan base. Oregon's got a real fan base. There, you know, there's some real college football fans up there in the Pacific Northwest. And when you see current Big Ten against future Big Ten, in this particular, you know, national championship game coming up, it is a reminder that once again, in the upcoming arms race for the sport, you know, the Big Ten is going to be a formidable foe. Now, the rest of the league performed very, very poorly in bowl games. That is obviously true, but that doesn't mean that the acquisitions of the Big Ten, eventually, maybe even USC or UCLA, but for now, it sort of seems more like it's 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 Washington, Oregon. But the acquisitions make the Big Ten a better league, if not a pretty cumbersome league stretched almost across the entire continental landmass, and you know. Michigan, even if Jim Harbaugh leaves, is still going to be a you know formidable team. Ohio State, even with some of the weird, uh, I want to say turmoil they're going through, but they're certainly having a little bit of a unusual, I would say, off season coming up. Uh, I would say there's still a formidable foe there too. So, you know, the Big Ten is striking a bit of a blow in terms of this college football playoff and eventually this national champion, SEC having to sit and watch this one. I know Greg Sankey gave a little bit of a shout-out to the Big Ten last night on social media. You're sort of forced to. So this is an arms race. I think on balance, you know, kind of comparatively speaking, player for player, team for team, the SEC is a much better brand of football. But the Big Ten, because of its just sheer willingness to go out there and collect assets and the fact that the top level big 10 teams are, you know, potentially pretty successful, but this is a real arms race moving forward. And this national championship game is an example of that. All right. Uh, as we get ready to go cruise around the SEC, courtesy of Royal Caribbean, I will remind you about the really, really fun things that we got going on here in 2024. And one of the biggest to keep in mind is a little bit of a conversation about this this morning. It is now like showtime, go time for the Dog Nation cruise. April's going to be here before you know it, and your chance to be on board, Allure of the Seas, is going to be awaiting you. Now, hundreds of you have already made this decision to be a part of our Dog Nation cruise, and now it's time as you look to the new year. I think one of the most important things you can do to begin a new year is to sort of slot some spaces for some travel. What do you have to look forward to? What's going to be exciting in the new year to come? I think it's a great motivator to take care of business in other areas, but it's also the kind of thing that sort of keeps you sane. Think, well, I can get through this, I can get through that, because I know coming up in April, we got some time on board the Dog Nation cruise here, and this year is going to be bigger and better than it's ever been before. So Jessica Slater's put a great website together. It's called RoyalDogs.com. RoyalDogs.com is the website that gives you all the information about why Allure of the Seas as an Oasis-class ship is such a different experience than anything we've ever provided on one of our Dog Nation cruises before. Perfect Day Coco Cay, NASA on the Bahamas, but also the specially themed Dog Nation events. And the fact we're going to have more of those this year than we've ever had before, it's truly going to be an extraordinary time. So check out RoyalDogs.com and you can get more information on that. You can also call Jessica directly, 770-718-9147. That's 770-718-9147. Email her, jslater at dreamvacations.com. She'll get you squared away for everything you need for the Dog Nation cruise because it's going to be here before you know it. All right, a couple of crews around the SEC stories here for a moment. Speaking of SEC teams beating up on the Big Ten, yesterday afternoon we got that Tennessee, an easy win against Iowa. This is an example, I think, of some of what we've seen a lot from this bowl season where, you know, we had this great respect for the Iowa defense, but when you see them giving up tons of yards and, frankly, a lot of points to a Tennessee quarterback making his debut as a starter, you're left to conclude, well, I guess – you know, Iowa, much like Penn State, some of these other Big Ten teams, perhaps our belief of them being a great defense only true because they were, for the most part, facing Big Ten offenses. Now, Michigan's excluded from that conversation because Michigan legitimately is a very good defense, but the rest of the Big Ten perhaps aided because they were facing Big Ten offense on a regular basis. I think you're forced to conclude that after the Tennessee game yesterday. There's also a little bit of hype forming around Nico Iamaleva, the uh, quarterback who made his starting debut. 
I'd say that Nico had a good game. I don't know that Nico had quite the level of game that some people are giving him credit for having, but he certainly played well enough that Tennessee fans are going to have that as a focal point to rally around for the offseason. And Tennessee, who as a program took a step back this year compared to the playoff contending team that it had in 2022, in terms of how you feel about Josh Heupel now going into year four and what level of excitement you have about that program, the presence of Nico Imaleva and what you saw from him in the bowl game was at least enough to, I think, make Tennessee fans feel pretty hopeful, pretty optimistic going into this new season. That was a big day for Tennessee. Now, oftentimes, these kind of you know positives from bowl games end up being false positives, and it ends up not being very reflective of what the actual new season looks like. But you got to have some sort of hope to sell and Tennessee has Nico to sell right now. And so from that standpoint, I would say yesterday was a successful day for the Tennessee program. Now, speaking of quarterbacks, another interesting quarterback story from yesterday that I think we can read into a little bit. So for now, the former Washington state quarterback, Cam Ward is announcing his intention to the NFL draft. Now he is not signing with an agent as of yet. So while Ward is like working out as if he's going to the draft and while he's declaring his intention to go to the draft, this is not a done deal until, is it January 15th? It's somewhere like around the middle of this month, I think, the date to like make this done, final, and official. So he's got a few days to change his mind on this if he wants to, and he's not signing with an agent. So while he is declaring intention, he's not necessarily definitely leaving as of yet. Now, I have talked to you about Cam Ward before here. Now, I realize as a Georgia fan, a quarterback that played in Pullman, Washington, you know, way up in the Pacific Northwest on the Palouse, is probably not all that relevant to you. But let me tell you why I think this is. It has been widely assumed that Cam Ward, of all the transfer quarterbacks, was perhaps the most coveted based on, you know, scouting reports, things like that. And also the most willing, based on what his camp has kind of been leaking to the media, the most willing to cash in at the highest possible dollar level in NIL. That Ward was viewed to be the top transfer quarterback, believing that about himself, one of the financial reward for doing so that he thought he was worth. And what we said the other day was, if you're a regular viewer to our show, you'll remember this. The fact that the only real school that it had any kind of real connection to Cam was Miami, the school that also has a history of being willing to pay the highest NIL figures, led me to believe, well, that means the overall NIL market might be a little soft here right now. He visited Florida State. We'll have more on them in a second. You know, rumored to Ohio State. But ultimately, that never really materialized. And so Ward was going to bet his NFL future on a coach of Mario Cristobal, who has just shown, you know, a real inability to have successful quarterback play for any of the guys he's had, including like say Justin Herbert, who went on to be a very high draft pick of the Chargers. Even when Cristobal had him in Oregon, they still weren't very good offensively. So I mean, Cristobal is just a nightmare for any kind of quarterback who wants to develop into an NFL prospect. And yet the only school seemingly willing to give. I'm reading into this, the sort of NIL figure perhaps that Ward wanted was Miami. And so therefore, as a way of getting like one more attempt at some leverage, okay, well, I'm just going to go to the NFL draft. And once again, you know, this is speculation, but I think it's informed speculation that if Ward is sort of dancing around with, I'll go to the draft if I don't get what I want. And a team like Ohio State, did you see Devin Brown in the uh, Cotton Bowl the other night? If you're Ohio State, can you really go into battle this upcoming season with that as your quarterback? Most Buckeyes fans would say no. Uh, look at Florida State. We'll have more on them in a moment. You know, Knowing how important Jordan Travis was this year, wouldn't you like to have a guy like Cam Ward? But apparently that's not going to happen. What you're, uh, what you're led to conclude here just for a moment is, is that um, in, the case of, in the case of Cam Ward, the NIL market that he was hoping to find Maybe it just wasn't as robust as he thought that it was. And maybe now he's moving on the NFL draft because he's just sort of disappointed with what, what's out there for him. In other words, if Cam is leaving going to the NFL because that's what he's decided he wants to do, then that's all good and fine. But if he's going to the NFL draft because he had heard all this wild speculation of Arch Manning's making $3 million and so-and-so is making $4 million. And all of a sudden, he's like, well, I want some of that for me, only to find out that the actual truth of the NIL market was altogether different than that. Then I think that's a real shame. And I feel sorry for Cam Ward if he got deluded into thinking all of that, that some of this wild NIL speculation is not necessarily a victimless crime if it ends up leading people to, uh, to believe that the actual market for their own services is going to be different than it proves, uh, than it proves to be. Uh, by the way, speaking of Florida State, to give you an idea of 
just how the the actual transfer market probably you know differs from the you know the uh, speculation about what it could be. It looks like Florida State is not going to settle on. I believe it has settled on DJ Uyunglele, formerly of Clemson, then at Oregon State, now heading back to the ACC in Tallahassee. That's their transfer quarterback of choice here in kind of the post Jordan Travis era here. And no disrespect to DJ. Who's you know I'm not going to you know, take any shots about him, but he's kind of proven himself to not be a great quarterback, and yet this is what Florida State is now doing because, much like a Graham Mertz or Peyton Thorne or guys like that a year ago, this just may just be representing of the best that's out there, and the dollar figures that you were hoping to be able to you know put together for a Cam Ward or hoping to get him to agree to that. That's just not materialized, and so you sort of go and look at the at the at the best of whatever's left, or the of the or the best of the next group that's out there. And right now, that's a guy like DJ Uyunglele. So finding your Michael Penix or convincing a guy like Cam Ward to take a sensible NIL deal because that's the money that you can raise. Right now, that I believe that's proving to be a pretty difficult thing to do, and it's probably worth watching. We'll make that cruising around the SEC, courtesy of Royal Caribbean. And as we get ready to wrap up on our show here today, obviously, a little bit of a different vibe, some of our musical effects and things like that, not quite here. But still very thankful to be able to deliver the show and talk to you the way that we uh, like to do. We'll also do this by giving you a, a golden shoe there as well. Our buddy Ryan Walker sends this in to us. Obviously, a lot of Georgia fans feeling pretty spiteful last night about the uh, – the fact that Georgia wasn't in the playoff, and so using this as an opportunity to kind of make fun of uh, Alabama for its loss. Ryan Walker doing that, yeah, putting a little bit of a spotlight there on Jermaine Burton, but also a little bit of a shout out to the finished long drink and all of this here, too. So, um, yeah, listen, uh, he says almost is for uh, Horseshoes, Bama, and uh, uh, Jermaine Burton. So, uh, pretty funny stuff from Ryan Walker. They'll, uh, we'll give him a golden shoe for that. We're never too proud to be a little spiteful around here. So, uh, pretty good stuff there by uh, Ryan. We'll give him a golden shoe for that. And speaking of spite, speaking of saltiness, how about those lousy stinking Gators? 1,151 days since they have beaten the Georgia Bulldogs. That is a number we're going to enjoy watching go up and up and up and up for a long, long time to come. And it's our Gator Hater Updater. We thank you for being with us. Uh, especially under uh, somewhat uh, unusual circumstances, but uh, we're happy to have the conversation ongoing. And we'll see you back here again tomorrow for Dog Nation Daily, presented by Engineered Solutions of Georgia. Have a great day, everybody.